1: Welcome to 3 R's Radiotherapy. Yes, it's that time of a Sunday morning when we sit down and have a little chit-chat about all things medical, mental health and other. Now, SK, our resident geriatric psychiatrist, screenwriter and comedic genius, is perfectly placed to review the film Still Alice. What happens to a linguist who loses the ability to remember words? Stay tuned, you're going to find out immediately. McZiff... Has spent the summer on the couch in a deep psychotherapeutic retreat he 's primed and ready to go in two thousand and fifteen while Dr Anabolics is our leading light. She shines the torch down the dark corridors of our minds and makes it okay to be who we are today we 've got a special guest in the studio, Associate Professor Peter henn's going to come in and tell us these new interventions in stroke therapy. Ah, don't laugh. No, there are new interventions in stroke therapy which have fabulous <laughs> outcomes. So there's all this, and the magnificent Kent on panel here on Three R's Radio Therapy. Hello,
2: hello, man. How are you? Yeah, hey, I'm good.
1: Yourself? You're looking beautiful.
2: Oh, as as al- always. As always. Yeah. I just get better with age, yeah. really.
1: Mix it, mix it looks a little worse for wear. I've got to say. Thank you very no. much, <laughs> Man, And uh,
3: I could say the same about you if <laughs> <Yeah>. not worse. <laughs>
1: SK, well, heard, you, I've just seen you all over the media for the last couple of weeks. What yeah. on earth have you been up to? Oh, we've been
4: promoting clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease, and uh, I, I resent your description of me as a geriatric psychiatrist, by the way. Oh, I still think of myself as quite young. <laughs> but, uh,
1: yeah, good. I'm glad you got that. I sort of uh, I could have called you a psychogeriatrician. That sounds even worse, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds like a geriatrician who's just lost it. Slight, slightly, yes. slightly mental. Yeah. You've got a, you're going to kick us off with a free community mental health information event.
4: Oh, yeah. We're just trying to promote uh, good community mental health events where we can here, and there's an event that's being organised by the Frankston slash Peninsula Mental Health Services Network, which has a terrible acronym, uh, FPMHSN. Uh, It's it's basically focusing on uh, carers of people with mental illness and how they often fail to get their needs met with services concentrating primarily on uh, the sufferers themselves. So if you are the carer for somebody suffering from a mental illness, there's a free community community mental health forum on tuesday march 24th at the hastings community hall three high street hastings uh, kicking off between 11 a.m and 2 p.m there'll be presentations from local mental health care associations and the uh, opportunity to engage one-on-one with other carers of people with mental illness so 24th of march tuesday at the hastings community hall Fantastic.
2: Now, anabolics. Yes, I just wanted a brief bit of catch up. There was an app, a new app launched last week by Rosie Batty, the Australian of the Year, yes. uh, called I Matter, and it was launched uh, through Don Care. Have been the group that have been um, have supervised this through and launched it, and it's available through their website. And it's been launched as a, a resource for young people who may be in abusive or destructive relationships, or who may be questioning their own sense of worth within the relationship sphere. Yeah. And it's aimed, uh, as they say, to try and you know empower young people to reduce them um, being in that sort of uh, abusive space, if you like, and help them find help, get um, uh, get connected with people who might assist them. There's quizzes, there's blogs about how to work out whether relationships are healthy or not. There's things like videos, a lot of videos from the um, the web sphere about what what healthy relationships should be like, what uh, what you might do if you're worried about being in an unhealthy one. Mm. You're looking quizzical. Have no, I said no. something? I, how, Have how, I forgotten how, something? How do you get to it? Oh, well, the best, the best way... Actually, I found it pretty hard to find on you, on, um, on the App Store, actually. I don't know what the, where there's trouble with the link, but the best way to get through it is to through Doncare. I would go through the Doncare website because they've got a link directly to it and they've got a lot of information about it as well. But
1: it's, quite, it's quite good. As, as I age, my hearing goes. But it, 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 Don...
2: Don sorry D O N C A R E. It's a okay. it's a it's out in Doncaster, which is where the name. Donkey. I mean, what the <laughs> hell sort of a Don Sorry, that might Orc- be my fast speech, okay, but yeah. it's quite a good quite a good app worth looking at. Okay. All right, uh, what do you think of the ice bucket challenge
1: that that, that occurred in our absence?
3: Hmm. Did for, you, for, for, for ALS. Yeah, yeah. The ice, you, you, you said, well, I, I mean, I, I was astonished at how widespread it was. Yeah. I mean, uh, all of my kids did it. Yeah, I, I yeah. Mean, it. It went viral, didn't it? Absolutely. So in America it raised, from the public purse, I think
1: 85 million US wow. in America. In Australia it raised 4 million cheaper just off that one Mm. it reminded me of the red nose uh, day uh, with with the children with cot death and SIDS it would be interesting to see whether it has a second uh, or a third or a fourth. Whether you know, I mean, eventually it'll wash out and it'll.
3: Disappear. As someone who's who works extensively in the area, do you think that the, I mean, this viral craze that took hold, do you think it was matched with any increase in public awareness of the actual of the condition which it was attached to? Uh,
1: look, I do uh, for all sorts of reasons. One of which was that we noticed that during the months that that happened, we our referrals to the clinic uh, trebled. And now that was not just patients concerned, that was patients with the disorder who became aware that they had the disorder. So the awareness. So anecdotally, I mean, I I can back it up with some stats if you like. But anecdotally, we saw a surge of presentations during uh, immediately following the awareness program for that.
2: So mean you're picking people are picking things up earlier. Earlier.
1: That's right. So one of the things about this, of course, will be to get patients very early in the course of the disease, uh, especially if there's ever a a. uh, a significant therapeutic intervention designed for it, but it was it was an interesting phenomena, um, and it was embraced, and I, I think it gave a lot of hope and heart to, to the carers and patients with ALS that f- that you know their disease that the, this, this disease that they've got is being recognised and supported, because you know for the last 30 years we've sort of been very much in sort of the the back room and. Uh, Off that
4: spike in interest that you saw in referrals to your clinic, I mean, what proportion of them were false uh, positives? Like one of the difficulties we have whenever we promote Alzheimer's disease trials is everybody who slips a word in a sentence every now and then is convinced they have the disease and rings up. Yeah, look, less than than 30% were false positives. So people are self-diagnosing themselves with ALS. I think on they the are approaching their,
1: they're approaching their GPs Gee. and they're just worried. I mean, it, it, and and the GPs would then say, "Yeah, look, off you go." And so it did pick up very early, and I'm at very early symptom onset, because often patients with this disorder will have symptoms and not be diagnosed for a diagnosis not established for 12 months because there is no diagnostic test. It's about a matter of clinical observation over time that gives you the diagnosis. So, you know, we know the lag time to diagnosis. in The average in Australia, according to the National Registry, is about um, uh, between 12 and 18 months from symptom onset a diagnosis is eventually established.
2: Is there an advantage? Like, if you pick up a breast lump early, there's an advantage. Is is there an advantage to getting these things early?
1: No. You One would be um, kidding ourselves if we thought we had a meaningful therapeutic intervention currently for ALS. There are certainly a lot of things to do. Mm. There's no doubt the response rate to some of the interventions we use really improve quality of life and, and do prolong survival. Mm. Um, but the drug therapies is lacking. Mm. But out of that, so out of the public purse of the Ice Bucket Challenge, the $4 million that was raised by the community, the... Um, the one of the Motor Neurone Disease Research Institute of Australia has partitioned a million dollars and have offering a million dollar grant mm-hmm. within Australia mm-hmm. for research into the cure um, a cure for sporadic Amyotrophic lateral sclerosis slash MND. Well,
2: that's great, isn't it? So
1: that's that's never. I mean, that level of funding uh, for that mm. type of research would has never occurred in this country. Mm. So it's been a uh, been a fillip for the, for the people that have been involved in the disease for a long time. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. S K.
4: still Alice. Alice. I'd like to thank the uh, government of North Korea for providing me with a free copy of uh, Free Alice to (laughs) review this week uh, courtesy of Sony Pictures.
1: <laughs> oh, well, you, you're gonna get a shut down, you know that. Don't yeah, you? yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Uh,
4: Still, Alice is, is a hot uh, Oscar contender for this year. Uh, Julianne Moore is the lead actress, and she stars in the film alongside uh, Alec Baldwin and Kristen Stewart. But uh, she, she's great. She
1: is, and she's uh, sensational actress.
4: Even ahead of the Oscar nominations, you know, she's already won 16 Best Oscar yeah. awards in yeah. other sort of yeah. non-Oscar presentations for this film so far you're looking for a sure thing for the Oscars this year, back her in. Uh, The film itself, however, has not been that successful, and Alzheimer's, well, films that depict dementia as their primary theme often aren't for a variety of reasons. But as of uh, last week... This film had only grossed $6.5 million at the U.S. box office despite all the hype surrounding Julianne Moore's uh, acting in it and had grossed only $1.5 million worldwide outside of the U.S., uh, It's one of the few films over the past fifteen years. That's minuscule. It's tiny, yes. But if you if you put that in a perspective, uh, somebody wrote an article in twenty twelve looking at films which had had dementia as their main theme since the year two thousand, and there were ten English language speaking films that dealt with dementia, and the combined gross of those ten films was one hundred and sixty five million, of which one hundred and fifteen million was accounted for by the Notebook. Alone. Mm -hmm. So it's not the sort of subject matter that uh, draws uh, people in. You know, people don't want to hear negative stories about neurodegenerative disease typically. Uh, You know, maybe a topic like dementia should be tackled by Michael Bay, and a giant robot could have its programming corrupted and he slides slowly into dementia perhaps, (laughs) and a few explosions would get punters in. Works for me. Works for you. So it's a difficult area to, to make a a film about its difficult subject matter these aren't feel good movies when they hit the film and uh, when they hit the screen and i did use the uh, the phrase chick flick to anabolics uh, outside uh, in the green room before to describe uh, still alice I guess this film uh, was interesting for me for a couple of reasons. I always like watching films with an eye for how realistically or otherwise they portray the condition that they claim to show. And unfortunately, in in the case of Still Alice, the answer would have to be it's not a very uh, successful portrayal. It's not a very realistic portrayal of an Alzheimer's disease type illness. It seems to take different elements of different types of dementia and jumbles their time course quite incoherently so that if you actually had a patient who was presenting with the cluster of symptoms that Julianne Moore had, particularly in the early stage of the disease, I would have been led down quite a different diagnostic line. The plot of the film concerns a brilliant linguistics professor at the University of Columbia, Dr Alice Howland, Uh, She's just turned 50. We first see her in the film during her 50th birthday party. She's the mother of three young adult children in various stages of their own careers. Uh, She's extremely successful. Uh, We see her presenting at a large conference. Uh, Her husband describes her as the most intelligent person I've ever met, and it's a particular tragedy that she's a, a professor of linguistics, I guess. So it's hammered home to the audience just how important her loss are uh, to her as somebody who was pre morbidly of uh, very high intellect. But it sort of diminishes the tragedy uh, of this disease occurring to anybody, really. We first realise that Alice has a cognitive problem when she's giving a, a, a presentation and an invited speech. She experiences a spontaneous word finding difficulty. She stumbles whilst searching to find the word lexicon, and instead of using the word lexicon, after a fairly lengthy pause, she substitutes it with a similar word. Uh, she uses the term word stock, which is, uh, you know, a, a I guess a corruption or a close meaning of the word le- lexicon.
1: It, actually, it's terrific because we've got two neurologists in the room. We're nearly at, we're, we're nearly even, Stephen, so we can have a really good discussion on this. <laughs> this uh, um, so word finding uh, as a primary presentation for this disorder, you're not happy with that? I'm
4: thinking that at the age of 50, if I had a patient who was presenting with a, a, an early word finding difficulty that was out of proportion to the presence of any memory difficulty as such, at the time I'd be thinking frontotemporal dementia there's a language variant frontotemporal dementia mm. and at that age that would be more common than an atypical Alzheimer's. A-
1: and we better make this very clear that's very different to the fact that we all have at some point in time depending on how sleep deprived we are, how anxious we are um, how preoccupied we are we will all have word finding difficulties. We will, we will all struggle to
4: remember where we put something we will all struggle to remember somebody's name we will all struggle to find the right word at times.
2: Uh, is anyone else excited we're about to see a neurology off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just wait. The,
4: the next <laughs> symptom... All draw, all draw. <laughs> There's no, t- no treatment for this either. Tom. Oh, so I, really really okay, really I feel completely comfortable in that case. <laughs> the next symptom that Alice displays in the film uh, she's, she's a runner and she goes jogging and she jogs through Columbia University presumably which is uh, an environment she's extremely familiar with having worked there for several decades were led to believe and while she's jogging through the center quadrangle of columbia university she becomes disoriented to place like she stares around herself vaguely with no actual recognition of where she's at Mm. and that is an early symptom of alzheimer's disease becoming geographically disoriented in a place that's very well known to you and in a sporadic rather than enduring way you know, to me, doesn't suggest Alzheimer's disease. Uh, you know, perhaps a, a TIA or a mini-stroke, perhaps to explain something like that, or, or a, or a or dissociative a episode, a migraine, yes, but uh, but not typical of Alzheimer's disease uh, in any sense. She then goes to see a neurologist, and I liked the portrayal of the neurologist. Of he course, was a, you did. He was a nerdy <laughs> Asperger's type. <laughs> variety of physical
1: deformities and social inadequacies uh, yeah, we're a very select bunch okay we're a very select bunch you have to it's not just intellect that gets you to become a neurologist there's a whole lot of other things you've got to have yeah okay. lack of social skills. all of that yeah all of that <laughs>
4: If if you've seen this film, uh, Tallman, and I'd welcome Professor Han's view on this as well, his his diagnostic evaluation of Alice was quite bizarre. Uh, It was admittedly (laughs) truncated into about three minutes of a process that normally takes an hour, but he, he actually used some real questions from actual diagnostic tools that we use to screen for memory impairment. But he doesn't use them in their entirety and sort of jumbles them up amidst his history-taking. Yeah. So spell the word water backwards and then now tell me about your mother and what did your father die of and now count to ten, you know, yeah. a, a real corruption
3: of the diagnostic uh, process. You, you know, interestingly, the name and address that he asked her to remember and then tried to distract her from has stayed with me ever since. <laughs> and I saw it some time ago, the 42 Black Street, Forty-two Washington Street, Hoboken, and uh, I mean that's interesting because that's the, there, there, there was some legitimacy to the memory testing that was being done, but it was it was. Cut to to shreds. Have, have
2: some artistic license. It's a movie.
3: That's right. Interestingly, in the Australian version of that
4: test, it's John Brown, forty-two Market Street, Sydney, is mm. what we use. But there you go.
1: <laughs> I tell you what, John, if there's a John Brown, he must be really teed off. <laughs> He's part of a diagnostic test. The neurologist does, however,
4: order some appropriate diagnostic tests. He takes Julianne Moore's concerns seriously. He sends her off for neuropsychology assessments. A very detailed cognitive. Testing and orders an amyloid PET scan. So there's now uh, describe that because
1: that's that's the new.
4: <laughs> like PET scan is a uh, is a functional neuroimaging scan. Well, yeah. I suppose it's structural in a way. Yes. It's it uh, uses a nuclear medicine tracer that binds to amyloid, which is the protein that causes Alzheimer's disease. So when you're when you have amyloid in your brain, your brain will light up when you have a PET scan, and uh, we see her PET scan uh, on the light box in the background, and she's got amyloid in her frontal lobes and her left parietal lobe by the look of it, which again wouldn't be necessarily typical of Alzheimer's mm. disease. Uh, he comments that because her diagnosis is early onset, it, should, it uh, could be familial, so what is some genetic testing as well, which is all quite reasonable. How she then declines, uh, and whilst it's true that the younger you are when you get the onset of a dementia the more rapidly you decline she seems to have an extremely rapid uh, time course you know in between getting her first symptom and waiting for her test results you know she's forgetting that she's met her son's girlfriend at Christmas dinner she's forgetting her recipes she's making uh, other word finding errors that aren't substituted with uh, appropriate words she forgets the name for cheese platter and she says cheese thing instead so Mm. She's obviously heading downhill at a rapid rate between the onset of first symptoms and actually getting a diagnosis. One of her daughters does go through a full-term pregnancy during the course of the film, but we're left with the impression that she goes downhill in about 12 months, which would not be, well, I suppose quite rapid even for an early onset. Aside from the realistic or unrealistic portrayal of the film, what was interesting to me in this film primarily was how it showed the concept of advanced directives... It's a bit of a red herring in the film, but what Alice does at the point of being diagnosed is she leaves herself, her future self, a video message. Spoiler
2: alert Yes, spoiler alert.
4: I won't tell how it ends, but uh, she she leaves herself a video message which tells her what to do in the event of future incapacity. So Alice has gotten into the habit of testing her memory each day with a series of questions and the video message that she leaves her future self uh, provides her with the location of a bottle of pills with which to overdose and kill herself in the event that she can no longer answer these three questions. And I won't spoil how that plays out, but it does raise to me the, the validity of advanced directives in the setting of Alzheimer's disease. Advanced directives are one of the latest and greatest things uh, in medicine. It's uh, supposed to be empowering for people. for to, whilst they are currently in a state of good health, be able to put in place their future wishes in the event that something bad happens to them in the future. You now, it's like saying, I don't want to be put on a ventilator, I'd like to be disconnected, those sort of things. Now, when you look at the validity of Alzheimer's disease advance directives, and you ask a group of 20-year-olds to say what they would like done with them at some point in the future if they are diagnosed with Alzheimer's a very high proportion of 20 year olds would you know request to be euthanized now what's interesting is as you age you know the older you are when you're asked the same question the less likely you are to select death or euthanasia or some other quick way out as an answer to the dilemma of being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. And the people who are perhaps least likely to request death or euthanasia or other sort of medical hurrying along of their passage are those who have just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So to me, an advanced directive that's made when somebody is making a decision that has no particular cognitive relevance to them, like the idea of a dementing illness to a 20-year-old is so abstract and foreign that the the idea has no cognitive salience, if you like, it could be a bit of a trap because you're making a decision for yourself... Uh, for many years in the future at which time your opinion about the significance of your disease might be completely different so uh, that was perhaps for me the greatest point of interest in the film
1: Tall Man. I mean that, that area of advanced directives uh, and how it changes depending the circumstances you find yourself is currently under quite active study
3: um, and that's got some um, some carry over to if you look at people's attitude to change in psychotherapy, for example. The motivation to um, to change, uh, personal change, uh, is often very high when somebody starts out in psychotherapy and then wanes. The people who are most successful in therapy are those who maintain a high level of motivation throughout. So assessing the motivation or the, the, the validity of an advanced directive, what someone says at the start of a process is often very different to what happens as the process is endured. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's a very important point. I think.
1: We actually might be able to deal with that in, in more detail as a... As a a topic later in the year, we'll, what we'll do is we'll get um, uh, Professor Julian Savulescu to come in because he's actually uh, doing some work in that uh, that area, so we'll get him in and explore that because I think it's a fascinating area, it really is and we're going to come back and speak with uh, uh, Peter Hand we're going to talk about all things stroke 3 Triple R hand, it's lovely to have you back on the show, you've been here a couple of times over our, our journey. Yes, uh, I have,
0: uh, tall man, it's it's, it's uh, nice to be back, it's a new studio, it's yeah. uh, very exciting and, and I'm a little bit upset that my, uh, my identity has been revealed, so those <laughs> who have very long memories and uh, recall an earlier iteration of the show uh, may remember my voice, but I'm not going to reveal who I was <laughs> uh, because I could get hunted down and shot. Yeah,
1: fair enough too. No, I remember that. I won't disclose. Thank you. Now we, we've there've been some real shifts and movement in acute stroke therapies. Um, let's just let's just deal with what we currently. You know, there's been a, a fairly vigorous debate around the world for acute therapies that undo blood clots in the brain or in the vessels of the brain, and that's the the thrombolysis story. So well, can I, I just was...
0: interrupt you, yeah. tall man? I, I thought I was coming on after SK to talk about really boring film <laughs> subjects, and I think stroke is a really boring film subject. I can't think of any good films that have no, uh, featured aren't. stroke, no. although I, I was thinking, I've been going back over The uh, The Sopranos, and at the end of Series 1 of The Sopranos, Tony Soprano's mum has a stroke, yeah. and, uh, and she's wheeled off at a time, of, have you talked about that? We it? have so a so resident well, expert you on
3: this. You know, the Sopranos has been uh, probably one of it, one of the, our favourite topics in here, and that was no, the no, most, one, of your one, favorite one of my favourite topics. <laughs> And and, uh, Tony Soprano's mother's stroke was one of the most disastrous events in television history because it robbed us of the most revolting character in the history of television and uh, a terrible tragedy, really. Well, you know, it was one of my most favourite types of stroke, (laughs) the the functional
0: stroke. It was very interesting. Anyway, I do digress and I I apologise Tallman.
1: So, thrombolysis. Tell us about that, and then we're going to deal with the clot retrieval stuff.
0: Well, it's it's, it's fantastic news. It's a very exciting time at the moment with all the developments, but uh, let's just take a few steps back. What we know about stroke is it's a devastating illness. It's got a high likelihood of killing you, but even perhaps worse, it leaves you disabled. So we know at a sort of population level the best way of reducing the likelihood of a stroke is to work on the risk factors and prevent people from having a stroke in the first place. But once you have it, the only way... that We can really make a difference to outcome, perhaps reduce death, but certainly reduce disability. Is to try to break down the clot that's blocking the artery in the brain. And so we've developed, really following on from our cousins in cardiology, and about 30 years later, uh, we've developed approaches to breaking down that clot that is blocking the artery in the brain. And the first development was actually 1995, so back when uh, radiotherapy was just in its infancy, uh, there was. trials done of a drug that you give intravenously perfuses or it works around the whole body and breaks down the clot in the brain and re-establishes blood flow to the brain tissue now some of the brain tissue is going to be irreversibly damaged no matter what you do but the idea is to keep the blood flow to the other vessels and, and limit the death and destruction that occurs within the brain so thrombolysis is able to do that and has a significant impact on outcomes it improves people's outcomes. So when we look at patients who get thrombolysis, because not everybody can get it, it has to be given only for patients who present very soon after symptom onset, but when we look at uh, outcomes in in that group of patients if we don't do anything, if we just admit them to a stroke unit and and give them standard care, probably about 60% of those patients will die or be dependent at three months. If we give those same patients thrombolysis, intravenous TPA as TPA is the drug, uh, then about 10%, maybe even 12%, will do better. And what this means is that instead of 60% dying, about 48% will die or be left disabled. So that's been a, a huge improvement, a major advance in, in stroke treatment. And that's what we've been working on for the last 10 15 years. We've been thinking about can we give it later than three hours? We've been thinking about can we give different types of drugs and is it a better way that we can give thrombolysis?
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's been a, a fairly fraught pathway getting to that point. That three-hour time window, first of all getting the public awareness of what a stroke might be, which sometimes we have attacks that you get a deficit. Uh, let's say you get a clumsy hand and you lose your speech for a while and then it completely goes away and we call that a transient ischemic attack. There's no residual damage there. But it's actually the brain... Um, uh, being as complex as it is you can get a, a lot of different symptom complexes that can represent a stroke so it's very hard to get that public awareness to know that the, actually this is a stroke and if you get to an emergency department within three to three and a half hours you're you know this this therapy can be given
0: yes it's it's really the the poor cousin of cardiology and there's there's a reason probably why we're 20 or 30 years behind cardiology when you think about acute myocardial infarction patients are generally 50 or so they're executives, they might be men, they get central crushing chest pain that's very worrying. Uh, it presents essentially as chest pain and people get distressed and immediately go to the emergency department. Unfortunately, with strokes, it tends to occur in an older group, so people in their 70s, and their immediate reaction to the development of symptoms such as weakness or loss of speech or confusion in the quadrangle, as uh, SK was mentioning before, is, is really to go and lie down. Mm. Uh, and and hope that it all gets better yeah. and so we're up against uh, uh, a real challenge there and that's something that's been working on. And I hope many of the listeners have heard of the fast campaign, campaign face, arm um, speech, treat. Yeah. Act fast. You've got to get into hospital quickly. And if you do get into hospital, there's a high chance that we can treat you. Uh, and one of the things we've been doing at a state level is trying to improve the number of people that are able <coughs> to access this complex therapy thrombolysis. been trying to make sure it rolls out to, to rural centres, uh, ensuring that me- all metro centres are able to provide it. And so things have been going pretty well.
1: Yeah. Um, so... Once you've you've recognised that you're having a stroke and you're at the, you know, there are things that we have to decide, like the first thing that has to be decided when you've presented is that this is not a hemorrhage into the brain because the hemorrhages into the brain can cause the same type of symptoms as a blockage to the pipes that are feeding oxygenated blood to the brain.
0: Uh, Absolutely. And, and about 80 to 85% of strokes that occur in, in our community are due to the blocked blood vessel, ischemic strokes or infarcts, and about 15% are hemorrhages. But obviously a clot-busting drug given to a hemorrhage would be disastrous. Uh, the, uh, it's, it's one of the sad things and difficult things about stroke therapy is that the only way we can currently diagnose a hemorrhage or distinguish between a hemorrhage and an infarct is to do a CT scan. And we need to be able to do that rapidly, uh, and that means basically the patient has to be in hospital, has to have access to the CT scanner so it can be performed, and we can find out, firstly, is it a stroke that's due to a blood clot or is it due to a bleed? Okay.
1: Now, so the TPA, the um, thrombolysis story, is is set and is currently being further investigated with multiple other trials and sub-studies, and now there's what you're... What's come out recently is actually going into the artery and getting rid of the clot via a catheter inside one of the vessels inside the brain.
0: Yeah, this is, this is the big thing. It's, uh, uh, you know, we know that if we can break down the clot, then we can limit the damage to brain tissue and improve the patient's outcome. But one of the things that we've known for a long time is that certain types of clots are very difficult to break down. They don't respond so well to a drug that's given intravenously. One of the other concerns we've also had is the bleeding risk associated with giving a drug intravenously venously that goes all around the body. Mm. Uh, so we've looked uh, over a number of years at the possibility of trying to pull out the clot, so taking an approach where we put a needle in the groin, uh, thread a wire up through the artery up to the brain artery that's involved, and then somehow capturing the clot, pulling the clot out. And uh, over the years, there's been a number of different approaches, but the uh, the, the breakthrough and the reason for the big excitement is that we've, we think we've developed a Pretty good system where uh, we're able to actually put what's called a stent into the brain tissue or into the brain artery, and that stent then allows us to suck out the clot uh, with a fair amount of force and prevent the blood vessels sort of collapsing. And then you remove that stent, so we're able to get that clot directly out. We can do it quickly, and so then it re-establishes blood flow.
1: So you actually uh, get into the vessel wall, and th- these stents are their little sort of um, wire cylinders, yeah, mesh like a cage. Wire- So that supports the vessel wall and allows high pressure suction to actually then suck the clot distal to the stent out. Absolutely. So, okay. And the the success rate of doing that
0: well this is this has been the great thing you remember I, I mentioned before that there's about a 10 percent absolute uh, risk reduction in other words uh, patients who uh, who uh, get TPA about uh, about 40 percent of those will have a good outcome um, uh, with with this new treatment and because we're dealing with a specific subgroup of patients who have a very severe stroke uh, only sort of 40 percent of them would respond well but with the new treatment the end of treatment, the, the stent, about 70% of these patients are having a good response to treatment. So they're going home independent after the uh, the treatment.
1: In fact, the, the effects were during the trial so clear the trial was ceased.
0: Yes, that's right. There have been a number of trials, uh, Tom, and there have been uh, a, a, a large trial in, uh, in Holland which recruited a, a, about 500 patients. And that trial sort of released its results towards the end of last year. And we were doing a trial at uh, Royal Melbourne Hospital and, and at other sites around Australia, but coordinated through Royal Melbourne Hospital. And uh, with the results of the Dutch trial, we went back and looked at our figures. Uh, we were two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through recruitment, but the, the results were just so outstanding. And uh, combined with the results from the Dutch study, uh, we felt it was unethical to continue on with the trial. So the trial stopped. Incidentally, there'd been two other studies running at about the same time, one in Canada uh, and one in the States, and they've shown almost the same results as the, uh, as the Royal Melbourne study. So a really positive outcome. OK.
1: And the, the time that... The one thing, the advantage of this uh, retrieval from within the vessel... Uh, is that you've got more time. When you give um, uh, TPA or thrombolysis intravenously, you've only got a three-hour window, but when you're going to um, remove a clot from inside an artery, that window to do the intervention increases out to six hours?
0: That's true. It does it does increase out, but uh, in fact the best benefits are had if you can move as fast as you possibly can. So we, we want to try to get the time that it takes from uh, the patient presenting to hospital to the time they get to the uh, angiography suite to be as, as short as possible, less than one hour.
2: Can I ask, if, if you do have a clot removed, um, what then would the person have to do to make sure it didn't come back again? Is there, are there simple things that people can take? Yes,
0: there are. There's lots to do, and it's all about what we call secondary prevention. So it's about taking a blood thinner like aspirin or clopidogrel. Uh, it's about controlling the blood pressure really carefully. I can't emphasise how important it is to get good control of blood pressure. That's really the number one intervention we need to do after a stroke to prevent the risk or to reduce the risk of a further stroke it's also about stopping smoking and uh, getting good control of diabetes getting better control of cholesterol with one of the statin drugs uh, and you know a good lifestyle measures such as uh, exercise and
1: uh, good diet okay um so fascinated by those therapies the the is there any current information about how you can how you might prolong the duration you could Um, to doing an intervention. So the problem here that we we all recognise is that it's very time-dependent. The trials to sort of put somebody in suspended animation while you gear up to actually do an intervention, and there have been lots of different drug trials to try and uh, sort of maintain somebody for a longer period of time so that you can gear up and, and get the intervention done. Even patient cooling has been um, proposed as a mechanism for that. How are we with increasing what we call the therapeutic window? Yeah, that's a really good question, Torman. So
0: there are sort of trials of hypothermia and other methods of neuroprotection that might uh, increase the the duration that we can give this treatment. The other other sort of general approach that we're looking at is, is there a way that we can define whether there is salvageable tissue um, outside the current sort of four-and-a-half to six-hour time window? So basically with these treatments, there is a risk and a benefit, and the risk is that you can cause... Bleeding into the brain. If you re-establish blood flow, and so what we're looking at carefully is, can we establish a, a a better idea of whether the patient's likely to respond to this treatment using imaging techniques to define if a patient may be a potential candidate for this treatment outside of the conventional time window. So we're looking very carefully at that. That's what what's going on. Okay.
1: Look. Well summarised and uh, it is exciting times in what is otherwise a fairly devastating disease. But again, it's all really when it boils down, it's about the primary prevention, good blood pressure control. Low fat diet, body mass index, good and living. exercise. Good exercise. living. Exercise. Yeah. And you can actually not get down the zone that. Uh,
0: so we don't see you in the first place. Correct. And
1: I'm yeah. out of a job. I exactly. don't mind. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We all agree. <clears throat> we're going to come back and we're going we're to turn the good men theme from last year on its head and we're going to talk about bad
2: men. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Hi, you're listening to Radiotherapy. McZiff, now we, we, we did have a real crack last year at talking about good men and in particular talking about good boys. And if we, if we created good boys, we would naturally then get good men. But this 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 year, you, you're going to turn it on its head. And you're going to actually talk about some bad men. We're going to give some exact We're going to finger point. No,
3: no not really. Not really. I'm, I mean, what I'm going to talk about today is how manifestly unsuccessful we were with our plans for, <laughs> uh, for creating good men. Because from uh, the time of our break last year, there's been some pretty terrible things that have happened, Tom, Mm. um, Mm. uh, across the world, and uh, I'm not suggesting that these have been uh, events that have been undertaken by bad men, but there have been events that have been undertaken by men who have been behaving badly, Mm. and um, there are a number of different things that uh, have really, uh, they've, they've stood out In in recent months. So, we had here in in Sydney, we had the the Lint Cafe Mm -hmm. uh, event with uh, Man Harun Monas, um, uh, an Iranian refugee or migrant who came here and uh, who basically brought Sydney and a nation to a standstill. Uh, We've had the uh, Charlie Hebdo. In Paris, in the kosher supermarket, uh, the attacks there, which completely shut down Paris. Um, we've recently had uh, the events in Copenhagen, um, really devastating events. And against a backdrop, uh, um, uh, we've had this constant stream of stories about sexual abuse, institutional sexual abuse. So we've had some, some really. Terrible, terrible news. Mm. And
1: uh, I mean, they, these are dark and murky things. There is no doubt, and it's often difficult to actually talk about them at a base level. Um, but it, we, we certainly have to confront this at, for what for what it is at, at the basic levels, both in terms of. Um, the, the terrorist threats and, and what that actually means and what it means for individuals and, and how not to, you know, lose your humanity in that process because I can I, that's my concern from my own reactions, my own guttural emotional reactions is my humanity starts to really evaporate.
2: There's also been one woman a week killed by her domestic partner this in the last six months. You know, it's just mm. extraordinary. That, that's the other mm. form of terrorism that's happening just quietly mm. in our suburb.
3: Mm. Yeah, well, <clears throat> I don't know what the answer is. Um, I would suggest that um, uh, if we look at what is it that makes men do bad things, we know a lot, but we don't know anywhere near enough. Mm. And... Uh, well, perhaps try and yeah. just work our way through it. So, so, I mean, what do we know? Well, we know that poverty is uh, is toxic and that... Um, uh, you know there there are a number of contributing factors that uh, that link poverty to to disturbed behaviour and uh, and impaired mental health. Um, you know there's a lack of hope, suboptimal housing, poor diet, limited access to resources, and we know also that there's this two way street between linking poverty and uh, and impaired mental health. So. People who are mentally ill with limited opportunities uh, are often um, often end up in impoverished circumstances, and we then know that those impoverished circumstances worsen any mental health issues that are already apparent. So, we know, poverty is one thing, and uh, and there in, in some of these cases where men are behaving badly, uh, uh, poverty in impoverished circumstances is is very much uh, a part of the story. I want to be careful;
4: you don't draw too close a link between the presence of mental illness and risk of violence. There, Absolutely, because
3: it's a, a different kettle of fish. Yeah, to, um, I, I, I totally agree, and I'm not. I'm just linking what, what we do know, because we don't we don't really know that. We we know more about the link between impoverished circumstances and mental health issues than we do about um, poverty and bad behaviour, because bad behaviour occurs across across all spectra of society. Now, moving away from poverty, we know that social alienation is toxic to to emotional well-being. If you feel on the outer, if you're peripheral to career opportunities, stability, material comfort and the like, uh, then anger, frustration, anxiety and depression are more likely to grow. And also the likelihood of resorting to suboptimal coping strategies and the sort of things that we see are drug and alcohol use, gambling and crime. And we know that those who are impoverished and socially alienated are more often aggrieved. And it is the aggrieved who are frequently vulnerable to being exploited by unscrupulous, manipulative individuals or groups who then seek to further their own political aims by recruiting these young often aimless and angry men to do their dirty work so that 's a, a pattern that we 've seen historically we 've seen it over and over again over hundreds of years and we 're certainly seeing it now and in particular um, with uh, some of the the the, the terrorist groups um, uh, and is in particular um, we see it with gangs and we see and Arguably, and this might be a controversial point, you, surprise, see, it with, you
4: see it with the army. If you, know, if you look at the demographics of those who make up the uh, United States Army, they're drawn from young, uh, uh, disenfranchised, uh, underrepresented, undereducated groups, and they're placed in a, fa- a facilitating environment where it's okay to be violent and aggressive towards other people. Uh, so I-, I think this idea of being poor and socially isolated and poorly educated and disenfranchised you know governments use that for
3: our own benefit as well but but what they do do to differentiate the army from less structured gangs and groups and and, and terrorist groups for example is that they actually have some hoops that you've got to work your way through and if you are for example mentally ill or Overly psychopathic. Promotion. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for that.
1: Um, and Look, so no, no. The, the, this is a very difficult thing to talk about because nobody here. I mean, we would all argue that the uh, the armed forces that are that are that are working on our behalf um, for us uh, do a, a great service. Um, they they protect our lives, um, and they, you know, they're in circumstances that I wouldn't, couldn't comprehend. Being in myself, I'd curl up in a ball. Wow. I'm sure of it. But what you're saying is absolutely correct. I was is keen to emphasise that it was
4: the U.S. armed forces. I yes, have no but, knowledge about our own. Yeah, armed forces.
1: no, no. But I think in general that this is the, these are the sort of discussions that it's almost politically incorrect to, to to have, but they need to be had. I mean, you know, we we do sanction. You know, we're about to have two men uh, shot in Indonesia, uh, and at the same time we are operating in a foreign. Country probably uh, shooting other individuals, but in the name of our good. Uh, And to me, this starts to get very muddled. You know, I I find it very difficult to separate. You know, well, if we don't want our our two criminals shot, why why are we over there? You know, killing other. uh, You know, as collateral damage, other innocent people. I'm, I'm not. T- making any more than that statement. It's just the complexity of this sort of befuddles my mind.
2: Well, I, as a, even though I'm a female, my interest uh, professionally has always been in male mental health. I've had a practice where I've looked after young men almost much more than I've looked after young women. And I've talked about this on the show before, but one of the things that absolutely leaps out when you are a female psychiatrist listening to young men talking about their actual depression, grievances, uh, aggression, their uh, trauma, what what happens is you see in front of you time and time again that distress, anxiety, depression turning instantly into anger in front of you. It is uh, part of the oppression of young males that is codified from the moment you're born uh, in, in, our, in Western societies, particularly I think almost in all, every society, that just says you mustn't cry, you mustn't be vulnerable, you must be competitive. If you're a man, you'll do A, B, C and D, and that includes joining the army, which is socially sanctu- sanctioned. And, you, you know, you have a certain role and you must not cry, you must not give way to grief, you must not be, appear to be uh, feminised. Uh, you know, all these things, and I, I've seen it a thousand times in a thousand interviews with young men, and it's so prevalent, and it, it is a common theme, I think, and so many of these issues.
3: So, you get these disaffected, often excluded, invariably naive young men who are seduced by the perversion of either a religious or a political ideology, and you might say that that includes being drawn into joining the armed forces of a particular country. And th- what happens is that the recruiting groups say, We have the answers. We will destroy the prevailing dominant culture that you and I are railing against. Join us, escape the mundane, escape the bleakness, the humiliation of existence as you now know it. We will empower you and remove you from a state of victimhood. And so there is this quick fix to a complex problem. And as Umberto Eco once said, the only solution to a complex problem, the only simple solution to a complex problem is the wrong one. And so it happens. So people are drawn into this situation where they think that there's an easy out, and there is no easy out. There's just an absolute disaster. And what we get is this picture, which we're seeing over and over again, of a lone wolf increasingly, uh, who uh, has a destructive zeal and who can bring a major city to a standstill. And we've seen this a number of times in recent months. So the question, uh, and I think the question which has been asked for for uh, quite a number of years is, uh, are, are these men bad or are they like any other man for whom circumstances have conspired to make them behave badly? And I don't believe, and I'm sure all of us in here don't believe in the notion of there being a bad seed, and I don't think that these men are born bad.
1: I, I think we should discuss that um, because, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not so sure that there's not a bad seed. No matter what you do, no matter what you say, if you're neurologically wired in a particular way, I don't believe that there is anything that is going to stop you acting out your psychopathy.
2: But when you say wired, do you mean from the, the time you emerge from the womb? Yes, you... I do. So you, you've you've seen babies no, that are evil.
1: Um, I, I've seen children that you would that, that you would argue have had a lot of um, uh, investment in them. Um, emotionally and from wholesome uh, backgrounds that just can't operate
3: uh, in, in our social context. Absolutely. And the issue then is how they are managed throughout their lives. And how do you turn someone who is a constitutionally difficult baby, who doesn't attach well to the breast, who who screams and shouts and is colicky and is difficult and has difficulties in preschool, in kinder, at school, in the army, wherever it is. There are these people. We all know them, but not all of them. Turn into destructive psychopaths who bring a city to a standstill. That's that is. I mean, we have um, family, community, society responsibility to be able to manage people who don't quite fit in. But that doesn't necessarily mean that these people are bad. It doesn't mean that they've got that, that they are a bad scene. Well,
1: I, only, only, I'd only use the word. I mean, but bad's a pejorative term. But I, what I'm saying is not fixable. You can pour all the resources you like into that into that person. It is
3: not fixable. Well, look, you, you may be right. You may be right. But, but, but I'm history, not
2: sure that's the profile of the people that you're talking it's about. Not, it's not.
3: It's not. It, it, it's, it's very different to to the profile okay. that I'm talking about today. But I think that's it's certainly something that is worth discussing. I mean, I think that you know what do we what, what do we have here? We've got an issue where um, you've got individuals who are not no longer behaving by any of the standard or acceptable norms of behavior that we've come to um, come to accept, and we've got politicians and um, and um, political scientists are trying to work out. You know, what do we got to do? How do we counteract the the pull, um, the, the the sort of pull factor that is drawing young men, young disaffected men, into behaving in a way that is um, is problematic. So, I guess the question. In in the last three minutes that we've got is uh, what, do, what are we, in fact, to do when we know that there are these young men who are at risk of being drawn into behaving badly? And I think what we do very well as a society is we are reactive. We have wonderful outpourings of grief whenever there is a disaster. We have marches, and we have displays, and we have flowers which are put as memorials. But I think we've got to be a lot more Proactive, And I think we need to have a meeting of minds and ways. Because I actually think that there is hope. And we've mentioned a couple of times on the show what's about to happen on an Indonesian island with Andrew Chan and Mayuran Sukumaran. Now, both men who've done bad things, there's no question, they've acknowledged that they've done bad things. And yet, by all reports, they have been rehabilitated. And they have been rehabilitated in the face of the unimaginable horror of facing their own impending executions. And this is a pretty remarkable thing. Now, what's going to happen as a result of the the torturous uh, Indonesian legal process that's entirely aside. But the legacy of these young men, survive or don't survive, is that there is hope, that there is a possibility of, of working through things and, and g- getting some good out of bad. Now... What do we have to do in the last minute or so? I think. We've got to recognize the widespread nature of the potential problem that we have here. Education is clearly the best form of prevention. And as we've been talking about, you know, how do you prevent a stroke? Well, the best way to prevent a stroke is, is deal with the risk factors beforehand. Deradicalization programs have started in some of the communities which are at risk, and I think that these needed need to be very, very much supported. And shining a light on abuse of all forms, whether it's in the uh, emotional, sexual, physical abuse, and we've seen that recently with this. Um, this very successful Royal Commission. So, getting back to trying to juxtapose last year's topic of good men and now men behaving badly, men need good role models. It's the absence of good role models that makes men fundamentally at risk of going down a path of behaving badly. And families, communities and society needs to recognise this. That needs to be our focus.
2: Absolutely, and I'd say one other thing too is that one of the things that attracts young men to these cults and to the army, as you were saying before, is that men are crying out for brotherhood. It's the word that you hear all the time in the, when they're raising flags and in, you know, this this concept of brotherhood for men, is what happens with people be, be, being beheaded is the end of the spectrum, but moving that bell curve to the left with good men reaching out to each other every day and not being competitive and to being allowing people to reflect on their own situation to be nice to each other gentle to each other dare I say it more female with each other and I get smiles all around when I say that, just as I'm getting now I'm telling you we've got but a sisterhood and the sisterhood works <laughs> yeah, no, they're good so brother, a good brotherhood will work yeah
1: okay look um, we'll, we'll keep back, we'll keep chipping away at this coal face because there's a lot of work to done but uh, to do but um, we better get the scientists on because they're're they're throwing stuff at us Uh Thank you for coming in and uh, illuminating us on Stroke and to uh, SK, McZiff and Anabolics, we're back. And uh, to you, the listeners, uh, we'll be here next week. We've got a cracker show lined up, so stay tuned. Bye.
0: This has been a podcast from
2: 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.